Well, hey, friend, welcome to Job with Julie. I'm Julie Slattery, and this is a listener-supported podcast and outreach of Authentic Intimacy, which is a ministry dedicated to helping you reclaim God's design for sexuality in your own journey. Now, before we get into today's conversation, I just want to thank you for the ways that you've supported us in this ministry over the last decade. Your contributions, financially, prayer, sharing our resources with other people really bless us and make it possible for us to reach those who need our ministry the most. Well, what do you think it looks like to disagree with someone and still love and support them? How do you reconcile what you know to be true with a person you're called to love when they don't live in a way that you believe is biblically right? And what does it look like when that person is your teen or adult child? Well, these are questions that I'm going to be unpacking in this episode with my guest, Kelly Urban, as we continue our seven-week series on different challenges around God, sex, and intimacy. Kelly is a parent coach and founder of Walk With Them, which is an organization that supports and equips parents of the LGBTQ plus kids with the practical tools and confidence to walk both in grace and truth. Kelly has years of experience in pastoral counseling. She has an MA in clinical psychology and a BA in biblical studies. Um, she speaks with compassion, empathy, and understanding. A few of the things that a lot of us lack when it comes to having these kinds of tough conversations and relationships. The work Kelly is doing at Walk With Them is vital for us as Christians when we pray for God to bring prodigals home and to reach really hurting people in our world. While my conversation with Kelly is geared towards a parent-child relationship navigating these kinds of issues, this discussion applies to all of us who are dealing with sexual conversations and want to represent Jesus' heart well. Well, let's head to the coffee shop for my conversation with Kelly Urban. Well, Kelly, God has given you a very unique call in this stage of life, and it's one that when you shared with me what God was asking you to do, I'm like, so thankful because it is greatly needed. So God has called you in this season to really help parents navigate the journey of having kids that are identifying as gay or LGBT. And I wonder just where did that call come from? How did you sense that God was nudging you in that direction? You know, I've, I've heard you say before that you feel like, uh, you know, being called into ministry related to sexuality was like a, a very big surprise and you know, didn't feel like a good fit. And it really resonated with that because I am surprised sometimes that this is the position that I'm in. So my, you know, my personal story is actually super unique, maybe a little unique for some people. I was single until I was 38. In that time earlier was, you know, pretty typically heterosexually attracted um, did a lot of therapy and started to work on attachment issues. I had some pretty deep attachment issues. And in that, I remember the very first person that I decided I was going to actually try to open my heart to and attach to was a, a female friend. And honestly, it felt like the moment that I did that, um, all this longing came with it, mm-hmm. which actually made a lot of sense in the context of my background. So It was super frightening. It was really unexpected. It was not something I wanted or that I could control. And ended up, you know, continuing the friendship with this woman 
and just kind of managing all of these really powerful feelings. And in that, the Lord just really taught me a lot. Mm-hmm. It was a huge call to obedience for me. Eventually, he called both of us out of that relationship um, into something. And, and it was just a friendship, but it was lots of complicated emotions. Mm-hmm. And it was the hardest act of obedience that I ever did, you know, to follow the Lord out of a relationship that felt like um, I needed it to survive. But I followed him and it was super painful and super difficult. Managed that. Year or two later, was set up on a blind date, got married at 38, ended up having children. Um, so several years ago, I think this was probably 10 years ago, I was praying and I said to the Lord, you know, I, I said, you know, everything that you've brought me through in life, you've somehow used later you know, to minister to others, but never that experience, you know, never that really unexpected feeling of longing toward a woman. And I felt like the Lord whispered at that point, I'm going to take you into this area of ministry. Mm-hmm. And so um, kind of reached out, talked to a few people, nothing came of it. Um, the Lord led me into being a teaching director for community Bible study. So I spent four or five years, just like immersed in studying scripture and then went to um, Wheaton College. And that was two years to do some work with really everything related to sexual discipleship. So kind of a focus on LGBTQ as well as just sexual discipleship in general for students. And then after kind of some restructuring, I left that. I went on a retreat um, saying to the Lord, you know, what next? Um, And in that, on that retreat, I really felt like the Lord was saying, the parents, the parents have a huge need. Yeah. So I think that there's been a lot of appropriate attention directed to individuals who have an LGBT experience, especially related to how individuals in the church respond to them. But I was becoming so aware in my work, and it it probably came out of working at a college because sometimes I would talk to the parents of these college students who were very, very Mm -hmm. distressed. Mm -hmm. And of course, I have children in those kind of teenage young adult years. I have an almost 19-year-old and a 20-year-old, so uh, just graduated high school and uh, just finished sophomore year of college. And so I think the fear... I know the fear that parents have raising children in this particular time. I share that fear sometimes. Um, I can get overcome with just anxiety about the kinds of things that could grab my children that seem so much more accessible than they were, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. And I just really felt like the Lord said, you know, no one is really ministering to the parents. They have feelings too. They have needs too. They are desperately trying to figure out how to navigate this with no compass (laughs) for how Mm -hmm. to do this and no assistance. Um, So last August, I uh, decided to start parent coaching. And I do that, you know, through, um, it's called Walk With Them. And it's not an official tagline, but my unofficial tagline is kind of, you know, let 
I'll walk with you so that you can walk with them. Yeah. Boy, that's beautiful. Kelly, you mentioned that God never wastes any of the experiences in your life and that that season where you experienced same-sex attraction, you're like, God, how are you going to use this? And I'm wondering, as you're walking with parents, how does that history that you experienced inform just your understanding of of what kids are walking through? Um, I think two ways in particular. One is that I do understand experientially when people say that their longings are not a choice. Mm -hmm. You know, longings are longings. They come from very complicated places and they have to be addressed and dealt with. The other way that that really informs me is that I can now look back on the journey that that was. And so that, you know, so many parts of my journey, of course, it's been, you know, decades of healing and changing and transforming as it is for all people and all Christians. But even in that particular piece of my history or my story, you know, it was probably two years at least of wrestling, of sorting out what was going on, of dealing with lots of intense emotion and grief and anger and questioning and trying to define and live out what a healthy relationship with another peer looked like when I didn't kind of have that background to build on. And Mm -hmm. so I think it gives me patience with people. I definitely view things from like I, I view things from the long game, you know? <laughs> yeah. Cause your road, your road was long. It wasn't an instantaneous thing. Right. As everyone yeah. is, you know, of right. course. Mm-hmm. And yet I also brings a lot of hope to me because it is so clear to me looking back that God was with me in every moment And a really interesting thing about that relationship. So we never had a physical relationship, but, you know, certainly had to navigate all the feelings connected to it. So when it came time to separate from the relationship, it it was interesting. The Lord kind of spoke into each of our lives from different directions that um, it was kind of becoming dependent, unhealthy, kind of jealous, and that I really felt like the Lord said that you both have gotten from this relationship everything that you can get from this relationship in terms of your healing, and now I need to move you on to other places because Mm. it's not going to stay. It's not going to be good to stay here. And so... You know, the fascinating thing is, is that I don't look back in that relationship as a horrible thing. I look Mm -hmm. back in that relationship as a gift to me because it was an important step in my development toward healthy, stable relationships. Now, following Jesus in the hard path of eventually moving away from it was not an easy thing, but I do see Um, the benefit, and I guess the necessity of 
different relationships for different times. Mm-hmm. So I don't really look at people and believe that I know what their future holds. <laughs> right, right. You know? I look at people as being in development and knowing that God can do beautiful and amazing things like he did for me. And mm-hmm. I have no reason to believe that he's not going to do that for other people. Yeah. And I think even as you're reflecting on that, Kelly, this is one of the things that makes these conversations so difficult is it's easy to say if there's a relationship where there's some sort of same-sex desire, everything about that relationship is bad. Mm-hmm. Instead of realizing that there can still be very life-giving things that are an aspect of a relationship that God would want you to have limits on or to walk away from. And I think having empathy for our kids that there's something life-giving drawing them to certain relationships. Uh, It's not just that they're choosing a sinful pattern. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, at least, yeah, maybe not life-giving in the context that we would think, you know, fullness of life, but it it is perceived as meeting an important need. Mm -hmm. And we have to acknowledge that. Right. Okay, so kind of transitioning to your work with parents. Boy, there are a whole lot of parents, some who are listening right now, who have reached out to us and said, please help me. Like, I don't know what to do, whether it's a teenager or an adult child who is identifying as gay or struggling with gender identity. You're absolutely right. There are very few resources for those parents. And so where do you start? Where do you start in terms of joining these parents on that journey? Yeah, I, um, you know, of course, the first place to start is just with, you know, a lot of empathy. I think that the overall cultural message is that a parent should just be accepting and okay with whatever it is their child, you know, chooses whatever way they live their lives. But the reality is that parents experience a lot of grief. They experience a lot of anger. They experience... Really, fear is the biggest emotion that I see. And so to just join with them and let them know that there is a place where there is sort of a holding environment for their emotions, too. Mm And somebody recognizes that they are people who have needs is always the place to start. Yeah, let me ask you about that. First of all, you're absolutely right that we need a place to get rid of our stuff so that we can parent without having our kids um, have to hold that for us. But I wanted to ask you about fear. What are parents afraid of? Yeah, um, let me just share a little story to verse first. So uh, several years ago, maybe like four, five years ago, I don't even remember what happened. My children came home from school and I was having a almost a panic of like, what are they like Mm -hmm. being exposed to out there? And I remember going for a walk and praying about it. I came back feeling really distressed. And um, as I sometimes do, you know, I'm like, Lord, I'm just going to open scripture and see if there's anything that you can give me here. And um, as occasionally happens, I opened to the Psalms and it was Psalm 37, eight. And the words were, do not fear. It only leads to evil. And that whole psalm is about really fearing the wickedness that can overtake a person. 
And I felt like in that moment, the Lord really just showed me that so much of our bad behavior is really not hatred-based as we are often accused of. It's fear-based. And so parents are afraid, um, I, you know, I think out any loving parent, their worst nightmare really is for their child to be grasped by something that they feel like will harm them. And that is the essential fear of parents. That it, first of all, they fear that it will harm their child's relationship with God in some way. And that's different for different parents. You know, some parents fear like just their child's essential salvation is at risk. Some parents fear that their child is walking into um, relationships that will be unhealthy for them. Um, many parents fear that their child will no longer be able to find a connection with a church community that they think is life-giving and solid. And they fear losing their children completely because there is sort of that unhealthy message out there, which says that if a relationship is not fully affirming, that it's toxic to you and you should cut off from it, which I really pretty much reject just as a, you know, somebody who trained as a therapist. I don't think that any relationship that's built on people either manipulating or demanding that the other person be a certain way, feel a certain way, live a certain way, that that's the basis of a healthy relationship. You know, <laughs> it never has been before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm just going to continue to say that that's not a healthy <laughs> yeah. foundation for a relationship. But there is a lot of fear connected with that because I think we've all seen people and heard stories where children cut off completely from their yeah. parents. So all those things that you're saying are legitimate and rational fears. Yeah. So you, you can't say to parents, don't worry about that. Those things won't happen. Mm -hmm. They very well may be happening or could happen. Yeah. So how do you help parents navigate those fears when they're realistic? Mm -hmm. So part of the work of coaching, of course, is, you know, establishing goals, right? So it does help parents a little bit to have to set aside the goal of, well, I would like you to change my child. <laughs> um, yes. There's definitely a part of them when they come where they desperately wish that I had that power and ability. Uh, but when we all like put on the table that the reality that I don't <laughs> have that power, then we move into other goals. And so for many of them, you know, their goals are, how do I stay true to my understanding of scripture and still love my child? And how do I love my child in a way that doesn't look like full on affirmation when that's not what I'm intending to communicate? So we kind of start there. We start with goals. And then my, the picture that I often give to parents is kind of a, a spider web, you know, sort of an attachment theory that way. First of all, I acknowledge that, you know, they have created many, many lines of attachment to their child over the years. And it feels like a lot of those are fraying. You know, they probably feel the snapping of the, the threads everywhere, which is a horrible feeling. Mm -hmm. But 
we can seek to find ways to continue to build threads. And so that seems to help parents a lot to just think in terms of more micro or smaller interactions and that those interactions have a lot of meaning and a lot of importance for the future, you know, so that this is not like I'm either attached to my child or I'm not. And it doesn't put so much pressure on each interaction, you know? Mm -hmm. So we talk about, okay, there may be many ways in which you cannot find a point of connection with your child. And, you know, part of that's the parent and part of that is the child, you know, that's a a two-way street. But we look for whatever we can to create threads of connection. And so I kind of think of them as like a tether, you know, that you're really trying to find ways to stay tethered to this child. I do have a lot of empathy for these, you know, young people. You know, we, the adults, have not handed them a a really good world at this moment. Mm -hmm. And I think there's been a lot of repentance in my own life that's even added to that compassion. You know, I was just as enamored with this little thing that they put in my hands that had all the information on it as everyone else. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact that I think we all in the back of our minds as parents knew that there was unhealthiness about this, we, the adults, you know, just kind of collectively have not protected children well enough from all the kind of horrible things that they could be exposed to. With Um, technology, smartphones, all of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I do Mm -hmm. have a lot of compassion for them. And I feel like, you know, how horrible it must be to live in a world that has no essential ground, stable ground beneath it. Mm -hmm. Everything is shifting. Everything is up to you to identify, define, shape. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just really difficult for these young people. And so none of us know where this is going. You know, I think that there's a lot of wandering for young people. There's a lot of, they're just kind of out there floating, you know? And so I just really believe that these tethers that we keep to our children will in the long run, be a really powerful kind of comfort and foundation for them. Like we know as Mm -hmm. mental health people, how important it is for people to have foundation and grounding. Right. And so I I feel like parents, you know, it's kind of like a, like an anchor. You're just going to anchor down deep. You're going to stay in one spot. You're not going to attack. You're not going to leave. You're going to stay anchored in one spot. And that little boat up there may be like tossing and turning and going here and going there and practically tipping over and all these other things. And you're going to just stay connected to it and anchored. Yeah. Boy, one thing you said there, Kelly, that I think is worth just highlighting and repeating is I think we take for granted the grounding that we had that our kids don't have. Yes. So we might say to them, hey, you don't understand. You haven't lived life as long as I have lived. And those kind of comments are, are valid, legitimate comments. But sure. we know what it is to 
for example, experience boredom and have to work through that. We know what it is to grow up where all of our interpersonal connection was in person and there was eye contact and yes. you know, we know what stable ground feels like, even though now things are tumultuous, you know, like we're impacted by the yeah. digital world, but they don't know that. No, they don't. So I think that's a really good point that there isn't grounding in this generation and that a main role of parents when kids are little, but also as they grow and become adults is to maintain that place of grounding, to be the thing that doesn't change, that stays consistent. Um, So I'm wondering, I love the metaphor you're using in terms of the tethers. What are some specific examples of ways that we continue to build connection with our kids? Yeah, that's a good question. I like um, John Gottman's work a lot, just in terms Mm -hmm. of relationships in general and conflict and attachment. And so one of them, of course, is not making every conversation about LGBT experiences or issues. What if our kids do? What if uh, they're constantly bringing it up? I would still look for other ways to engage with them. And the beauty of Gottman stuff is that um, attachment, those connections, you know, where they talk about like the five positive to the one negative, that the five Mm -hmm. positive don't have to be verbal. They can Mm -hmm. be walking past someone and like sliding your hand across their shoulder. They can be a smile across the room. They can be a wink. They can be um, laughing at someone's joke and responding to them. They can be... um, oh, you know what? I know you're on your way to work, so I made you a sandwich. You know, um, mm-hmm. it's in the refrigerator because I know you like that one. But those are all points of connection. Each time that a person offers and someone else receives one of those types of interactions, that's a little thread. Mm-hmm. So I encourage parents a lot to look for those things. The conversations are harder but that is part of what the coaching is. We work a lot on language. We work a lot on how to say things in a way that open up space a little bit for conversation or um, language that communicates the same thing more as, as softly as possible. Can you give an example of maybe like what it might sound like before the coaching and then how you coach them to present that same thing softer? Yeah. So uh, theological um, perspectives, of course, you know, those are big arguments. You know, what does the Bible say? Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, one person, you know, is going to like say the affirming view and and the other, the parent might say, but the Bible says blah, 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 blah. So a softer way to say that might be. Well, you know what? I I hear what you're saying, and I know that there are people who take that theological position. But here's what gives me pause, and that makes me just not quite able to get over to that side. So one common one might be, um, you know, this idea that how the church has viewed same-sex relationships is similar to how they viewed women and similar to how they viewed you know, racial issues, but women, women is an example. So I might say, um, well, here's what gives me pause though. I can read the whole Bible and see so many circumstances of Jesus, like elevating women, supporting women and women in leadership. 
I just can't read the whole Bible and come to that same understanding about sexuality. Mm-hmm. So that, that kind of gives me pause and doesn't allow me to really kind of move over to your position. So that's a mm-hmm. much softer way, right, of saying, I just don't have the same theological perspective as you. Right. I encourage parents to talk about higher values. So in terms of relationship, young people also don't know how to do relationships across differences very well. So um, we need to teach that and we need to model that. Old people don't always know how to do that either. So (laughs) it's not just a young person problem. I feel like it's an American problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's probably (laughs) true. But, you know, I, sometimes I'll have parent or, you know, think about with parents, how they might say, you know, I know that it feels like we can't be in a relationship at all if we don't agree about this. But I think that we have a strong enough foundation as a family to have like a higher goal. And that that goal is to truly be able to love each other and continue on with each other, even across important differences. And that mm-hmm. is my hope and desire. You know, I have no plan to let you go. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are kind of softer yeah. and more gentle words. Yeah, the other thing that I love about Gottman, which has stood me in great stead in my own parenting, is the idea of repair attempts. So yeah. sometimes in coaching, we're preparing for conversations and how you might say things in a way that is more likely to be heard versus rejected. Sometimes we're talking about how to repair something that just went horribly wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And the beauty of, you know, Gottman's work on repair attempts for me was when I started to understand that breaks in relationship and big mistakes were not a horrible, terrible thing. They're actually kind of grist for the mill for developing strong relationships because that's how you become truly secure, right? In a relationship, you have Mm -hmm. a break and then you have a reconnection and a reassurance that even though that was horrible, I'm still here. Yeah. And that's how safety and security are really communicated. You can say to anybody, oh, you're safe with me you're secure with me. You know, that means nothing. And no relationship feels truly safe until it's been tested and still stands the test of time. And so I Mm. help parents not see those events as failures, but as just part of the process of human relationship. You know, God's just been so gracious that way. All the things that, you know, Satan would mean for our destruction, God like turns on their head including mm. big, huge breaks in relationships. When you repair right. them and that, in a godly manner, it actually becomes more secure. Yeah, and that could be a conflict in the here and now, but it could also be how we handle recognizing failures that we've had in parenting 10 years ago. Right. Uh, you know, yeah. just that humility to say, hey, I understand now how when I did this or didn't do this, that hurts you. And I just want to say how, how grieved I am by that. And would you forgive me? And 
Boy, that is so true in terms of that building the fabric of safety and relationship. Right. And actually, those threads are firm, you know, those are the thick threads. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They are. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. reinforced. I'm sure a lot of your coaching is helping parents navigate some of the decisions that they need to make that are very practical. Mm-hmm. Like my son, who's a senior in high school, wants to go to prom with another guy. Or my college-age daughter wants to bring home her girlfriend for spring break. Or do I go to the wedding? You know, all these very practical choices that parents have to make. Do you have some hard and fast principles that help navigate that? Or are you really more guiding based on helping parents like discern their own convictions? How do you navigate those things? Yeah, um, you're much more the second one. I would say my guiding principle is that healthy relationships are built on people expressing themselves with integrity. And so when it comes to things like pronouns and it comes to things like um, you know, prom and things like that. You know, we talk through, you know, kind of the pros and cons of various issues, but I don't really have strong views myself on what parents should do. I mean, clearly this is complicated. Clearly we're navigating, um, territory that we haven't been, most parents haven't been in before. And I view this as a journey as well, you know, kind of a developmental journey for everyone. So I have many, many parents who say, I just cannot use alternate pronouns. Like I absolutely cannot do it. And so we'll talk about ways to have a conversation with a child that broach alternatives. I like just respecting integrity. So I remember one time at Wheaton when I was working with a student and she um, wanted to start to use alternate pronouns. And I said, you know, I, I really, really appreciate what you're communicating to me and that you're using these alternate pronouns as integrity for you and where you're at and what you're experiencing. So I, I want to say that first, like I, I appreciate that. I also want to say that there's two of us in the room and that both of us have to communicate, live, express ourselves with integrity. And at this moment, I am just having a hard time figuring out how to do that. But I really want to be in a relationship with you. And I really want to figure out, you know, maybe something that you can feel good enough about and that I can feel good enough about where we can kind of meet. A lot of parents will go with nicknames, maybe. Some parents will choose with pronouns. Like, So here's a super tricky thing. I have more and more parents now who have minor children who are entering into the mental health system for some reason. They're anxious, they're depressed. So It's been pretty typical lately that as soon as you bring a child into the mental health system, if they say they're trans or want to use an alternate name or an alternate identity, the mental health worker tells the parent essentially that you need to do this. And if you don't do that, the treatment and the therapy kind of gets stuck (laughs) on that issue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When very often there's like 13 other things (laughs) that actually really need to be addressed. Sometimes parents will communicate to a child, you know what, I don't know 
where I'm going to land on that. And I'm not super comfortable using, you know, an alternate name. But for right now, while I know there's so many other things you, you need to address, if this is going to be a distraction, you know, I'll do my best for right now to call you by this alternate name so that you can deal with some of the other things that need to mm -hmm. be looked at. So the right now language kind of just communicates that, like, I'm not saying what I'm going to do tomorrow or next week or next month. But in this moment where we're at right now, based on what I think you need, I will make this accommodation. So let me ask you, Kelly, there are some listening who would say that's compromise. Like uh, what our kids need to hear is they just need to hear the biblical truth that they're wrong, that the choices they're making are sinful, that you're never going to agree. And some of the softer language sounds like being too therapeutic or, you know, not hitting truth. So I'm wondering, and I'm sure you, you know people within our field who would say that and who would say there are some things that you should always do or never do. And that would be their position. So mm -hmm. how would you respond to that? I know that you are grounded in scripture, that your desire is to uphold God's truth in these things. Um, so why do you have a different approach than, than some of those others would have? I think one reason is, is again, that I play the long game that, um, mm -hmm. you know, you want to find ways to maintain as many connections as possible. Now, to be clear, I would never tell a parent that they have to do that. We talk mm -hmm. about those as possibilities. And sometimes parents can do that or will do that for the sake of their child and the therapy being able to address different things. The mental health system is really complicated to navigate right now in terms of some of these issues. But I think that you use the word hit there, you know, that why don't you hit on these yes. topics? Uh -huh. yep. <laughs> and so it really is to me, the difference between um, like, should you use a hammer <laughs> in mm -hmm. every circumstance? Mm -hmm. I talk about boundaries sometimes with parents that, you know, you can bump into a boundary that has spikes on it, or you can bump into a boundary that has pillows on it. Right. They're both a boundary They're Neither one is moving. Yeah. But one is going to hurt a lot more than the other. And mm -hmm. so um, how do we use our language and how do we communicate a boundary in a way that is just going to cause less damage? You know, in terms of biblical truth, there are oh, so many thoughts about that. Um, one is that I understand that people don't make sex like it, like in this culture, to pursue what you want, to have a sexual relationship, those are viewed as just kind of like human rights and, and essential human needs. So to give that up or to sacrifice that is not an easy thing. And so I think about like who sacrifices, right? Who makes hard sacrifices? Well, people who think another option is better will make a hard choice, right? Mm -hmm. And so unless a child is really at the stage where they believe that the fullness of life that Jesus wants to offer is better than the thing in front of them, mm -hmm. they don't really have a reason to make that sacrifice. Right. And I think what parents sometimes try to do is give the reason of, I'm going to withhold our relationship. 
So I want to make you feel the pain of my disapproval and to move your behavior. But you're absolutely right that the thing that compels us to lay down whatever our our idols would be or our desires would be is that we have a greater yes, that we know the love of God. We know the grace of God. We're more passionate about living for him than we are living for ourselves. And that's not just in the conversation that we're having here, but in everything we choose. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, oh, where'd I put it? I, I wrote a little blog post recently on something. And um, this is one of my favorite all-time quotes. I came across it. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Tim Challies. He's the yeah. author blogger from Canada. He had this little post one time, and it was like 12 kind of random things that he was thinking. And this is what he said. Remember that your children are sinners who are beset by the fierce enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Be gentle with them and have pity for them. Don't be yet another enemy to them. Mm. And like I have highlighted that. I have kept that. And then, you know, immediately Colossians 3.12, you know, be holy, be peaceable. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. There's no family exemption there, you know, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. says that, well, you have to do that to everyone outside your family, but not inside your family. Right. And so, you know, even with our children, it's so important to not be their enemy and to approach them with compassion and patience and kindness, even as, you know, we stand on, you know, God's word. So again, I view it as like, if you think about an anchor, dig down deep into scripture, into Jesus, don't attack, like don't move forward and attack, don't back up and retreat. So fear, of course, you know, what are your fear responses? Fight, flight, and freeze. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Parents do those in their relationships with children. And it mostly does come out of fear, fear that they're abandoning, you know, good theology, fear that they're abandoning Jesus, fear that they're moving toward a whole bunch of things. And so parents respond with fight, which is that attacking, the hammering, the, you know, trying to get the child to come around, fleeing, which is just I need to separate from this relationship. This is too complicated, too painful, too wrong. Or freezing, which is just really not responding at all and kind of going numb in the relationship. Mm -hmm. And while I completely understand all of those responses, those are not the responses that are going to move us into kind of the wise, measured responses that these children so desperately need. Mm -hmm. Um, they yeah. need wisdom speaking into their lives, but they're not going to listen to it if it comes as a hammer. It's just not mm-hmm. that culture anymore. You know, mm-hmm. we grew up probably with parents who were like, you know, you don't like it. So what? I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the culture these children live in. <laughs> right. Kelly, let me ask you as we wrap up, all this parenting is happening, not just in your own home, but it's happening in community. Mm-hmm. And I know... Another dynamic of this is parents feeling like there's nowhere I can share this, or if I do share it, everybody has their simplistic advice of, well, I would do this, or or judgment. How can the body of Christ be an effective ministry to parents who are walking this journey? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And I will just confirm that most of the parents I talk to their first responses. This is such a relief to me. I have had no one to talk to 
who can help me in any meaningful way, like walk this journey. And there are also the very real issues of parents not wanting to talk about these things super publicly, especially if a child hasn't come out really publicly because Mm -hmm. they don't want the stigma. They don't want to label their child. They're hoping it goes away. They're not sure how their church will respond. So, So many issues there. So generally with parents, I encourage them. We talk through who their support systems are and are there, you know, three or four other people, other couples, people in their church who are just willing to meet with them to strengthen like their soul, not people who are going to be firming up their theological arguments and spend most of the time in that, but who are just going to pray with them, who are going to reassure them that, you know, Jesus is a place of rest and peace in every circumstance and who are going to help them exercise their faith, their whole faith, which includes truth and also includes mercy and also includes love and also includes forgiveness and also includes, you know, turning the other cheek, you know, when someone hits you and then you're going to let them, you know, you're going to stay around and they're going to hit you again. You know, it really is finding people who will help you exercise your whole faith. So I find that more helpful than groups where parents get together and try to figure out what to do about Mm -hmm. this, you know, Mm -hmm. because there is no singular roadmap or singular way of responding. It really is coming together with people who tie you to Jesus, you know, who um, remind you that there is hope, remind you that he doesn't leave, you know, those who committed themselves to them, that he goes after the one and, you know, leaves the 99. So I think it's more that. I think it's less help me know what to do and more time spent together really laying these things before Christ, praying, remembering his promises. I find those more helpful at this time. I so appreciate Kelly's willingness in our conversation to share her own story and the ways that God has used her story and her giftings to serve people and families so that they can communicate better, relate to one another, and care for those identifying as part of the LGBTQ community. I particularly love that Kelly said that the decision to leave a relationship is one of the hardest acts of obedience. I think sometimes it can be easy to forget the feelings that people are experiencing and the security they feel is very real. Remembering this will help us to better empathize or in the words of scripture, actually grieve or mourn with those who mourn. The work Kelly is doing really encourages me. I know there is such a need and maybe you're a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle of a kid who is struggling and identifying as LGBTQ and you really needed to hear this conversation. Or maybe you know someone who could benefit from hearing more of Kelly's work. I'd encourage you to take a look at our show notes and to read more about the work of Walk With Them and to find out how to reach out to somebody like Kelly. Well, I'll be back on Thursday with my friend and my cousin, Hannah Nitz, for another special edition bonus episode. And we'll discuss why the sex talk is not enough when it comes to sexually discipling your kids. You're not going to want to miss this one. So thanks so much for listening, friend. That's all I have for now. And I'll see you on Thursday for our special bonus episode of Java with Julie.